Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. This is New Books in Gender Studies and I'm your host, Jill Messino. Today I'll be speaking with four individuals, Teresa Kulovic, Jana Kravchenko, Elžbieta Korulchuk, and Agnieszka Graf, all contributors to the volume Borderlands in European Gender Studies, Beyond the East-West Frontier which was edited by Teresa Kulovic and Jana Kravchenko and published by Routledge in 2020. Welcome, everyone. Hello. Hi. Hello. Hello. So just a little background on our authors before we begin. Teresa Kulovic received her PhD from the Free University in Berlin. She is Professor of Gender Studies at Söderten University in Sweden and specializes in comparative gender studies with a specific focus on the development of social and bodily citizenship in Germany, Poland, and Sweden. Her current research examines the linkages between public knowledge regimes and policymaking, and her recent publications include a co-edited special issue entitled Experts, Idiots, and Liars, The Gender Politics of Knowledge and Expertise in Turbulent Times for the journal Social Politics, International Studies in Gender, State, and Society. And she also contributed an article to this special issue entitled Political Epistemology in Gender Policymaking, the German Democratization of Expertise. Dr. Kravchenko is Senior Lecturer in Sociology at the School of Social Sciences at Sudeten University. Her research focuses on welfare policy, specifically on family policies, housing policies, urban planning, and the transition to adulthood and development of civil society in Russia. Dr. Korolchuk is an associate professor of sociology at Sodotun University and at the American Studies Center at the University of Warsaw. Her research interests involve social movements, the politics of reproduction and right-wing populism, and mobilizations against gender. Her most recent publication includes Anti-Gender Politics in the Populist Movement, and that was co-authored with Agnieszka Graf and published by Routledge in 2021. Dr. Graf is an associate professor at the American Studies Center at the University of Warsaw. Her articles on women's movements and gender in Polish and American culture have appeared in collected volumes and leading academic journals, including Public Culture, Feminist Studies, Science, and East European Politics and Societies. She has authored five books of feminist essays in Polish, and her most recent work includes a co-edited special issue, Gender and the Rise of the Global Right, for the journal Science. So, Teresa and Jana, can you tell us what inspired you to write this book? Yeah, uh, actually, the book uh, emerged out of a conference, uh, which had a quite of a funny, nice title, Why Is There No Happiness in the East?, which I co-organized. Um, but for me, the starting point for the topic which uh, is explored in the book was when I realized the asymmetric order in knowledge production in gender studies uh, between the so-called 
Eastern Europe and the West. I am born in Poland, but was later brought up and educated in West Germany. And my early career, my in my early career, my specialty was the analysis of gendered welfare state regimes in Sweden and Germany. But when I relocated to Sweden and started doing research about Poland, I saw things I have not done before. I realized the asymmetric order of keynote speakers being from the West and scholars from the East relegated to a few clearly marked panels. So in order to understand this awkward position of whatever you choose to call it, Eastern Central Europe, new democracies or post-socialist countries, I gained important insights from meta perspectives on gender knowledge and the formation of gender studies, as well as post-colonial theory. Uh, I learned that the space referred to as the second world is best understood as representing a kind of second other of Europe. And this was the starting point for the conference. And Jana, did you want to um, elaborate on that? For me, I'm not a gender researcher. I have to <laughs> preface this um, my, my comments by this. Um, I am, uh, as you mentioned in my uh, presentation before, I am did research on uh, welfare policies, on transition to adulthood. And um, in one way or another, I always um, ended up uh, leaning on uh, feminist theories. Um, and my um, interest in this volume and in working with uh, Teresa specifically was um, theory-driven. I, I wanted to see, um, or rather I knew that in the field that I was working at, at the time, um, I could, um, in a constructive way, apply um, a, a feminist theory, and that was my um, that was what drove my interest um, in both in writing my own chapter, but also in uh, working with uh, Teresa on the volume as a whole. And if I may add to this, uh, here Elspeta speaking, um, actually, it you know all of us here, the four researchers, uh, we have been born outside of the West, Western Europe, but we are working mostly or um, predominantly within the context of um, um, this kind of you know Western European or transnational um, production of knowledge. So. It is uh, this double um, position that uh, makes us think about what it means to be um, positioned outside of the center. What it, what constitutes a periphery? What constitutes uh, the core? Uh, who decides on that? Uh, what are the conditions for belonging, uh, both in terms of you know citizenship, but also in terms of uh, belonging, for example, to the um, to the European community of scholars, and I think that this is something that has um, really influenced uh, this volume and our through our discussions and through the conference and through uh, the ongoing conversation that we had. Yeah, and I'm, I'm that was actually a really good segue into uh, my next question because in the introduction you discussed how in handbooks on feminist theory that the second world and post-socialism are overlooked so that there's, uh, of course, emphasis on the first world and also the global south, but that the second world um, and post-socialist states seem to be neglected either completely or they're given a token 
token chapter in, in these handbooks. So can you explain uh, why this lacuna exists, why there is this neglect of the second world and post-socialist states? Of course, there's, this is, there's no easy answer to that question, why there was the, the lacuna. And I have to admit, when I, before we started with the book and the conference, I had actually no idea about it, how one-sided the, the narratives were about the transnational uh, women's movement and uh, academic feminism. And what I would say now is that actually the, um, the 1989 year, which was such a enormous, includes such enormous epochal changes, both in, in political terms, but also in epistemic terms. It was the time when uh, Gender Trouble by Judith Butler was published, and which is a time which usually is connected to the cultural turn or linguistic turn, or it has different names, this kind of epistemic and paradigmatic upheavals within academic feminism are usually the story which we tell. And the communist bloc and the second world, in a way, already there, take the position as lagging behind. Uh, some years later, this was phrased on an UN conference as a non-region, that the uh, former Eastern bloc became a kind of uh, deviant modernity and a place of absences. Uh, rather than part of it, uh, of the new developments, uh, so to speak, in the three worlds. What for myself actually was really highly surprising is when I learned uh, and realized the very important role in the so-called second world or the communist bloc and the unaligned countries, which we today call either global south or third world, which how important their role was in the um, after the Second World War and especially in the 60s uh, in an alliance um, to at the UN level to push for women's rights, uh, which to a large degree has been erased from Western uh, storytelling. Uh, I can only have, so to speak, for myself, one answer is that many handbooks actually present a story of the winners and the West seem to be, the capitalist West seem to be here, the winners. Uh, and it seems not so comfortable and not so um, interesting to rethink it. Why were the 60s and 70s so contested? It was a time of great contestation between different positions. What are, for instance, women's rights? Should it be individual rights? Should it be collective rights? So, yes, um, it's a kind of leaving it behind you so you don't have to think about actually how complex the stories were. Yeah, if I may add something, um, it seems to me that the, the story of Western feminism in the 80s was also the story of unfinished business uh, about that had to do with race uh, and, and conflicts between black and white feminists in the 70s and 
perhaps a guilt-driven um, new inclusiveness of Black women, especially in American feminism, which then became an, an, an a movement towards inclusion of women from the global South. And I think, in a way, that um, shift uh, was enough. In other words, there was no need to to include women from uh, yet another region. That would have been too much of a complication. Um, and I, I remember, uh, you know, reading about those debates and asking myself, well, where do I come in? Am I the white woman who should feel guilty or am I somehow the black woman who gets to be included? And the answer, of course, is neither. Um, the... the Eastern Europe did not fit into the story of reconciliation and redrawing of boundaries that had to do with debates about race in American feminism. Did anyone else want to add to that question? Well, I might just add the uh, which I something that I, I um, you know found really interesting in the introduction uh, um, written by Teresa that you know it's quite ironic that uh, us in in let's say Western feminism, the idea of progress have become a contested category. At the same time, um, it has become um, this kind of linear vision of progress uh, has become uncontested um, vision of feminist genealogy. So this is something that um, I think it's important here to, to stress here, that, that this uh, notion of uh, linear development from kind of backwardness towards uh, towards um, more progressive uh, position is part of this story as well. Anyone else? Yeah, I, I was wondering, first of all, if it's not something that you see generally in uh, social sciences, um, with um, regardless of whether it's about the, um, the story of um, feminist studies or uh, welfare studies or studies of uh, civil society, um, the story of the East often is told uh, by those from the West very often. Um, and I think, was it Elzbieta uh, who mentioned it earlier, um, the practice of fundraising for, for research and uh, including Eastern European experience often as a, as a token, um, rather than uh, something that takes a uh, central place in uh, in research. We've seen it, um, maybe it's just me quite sensitive to it, um, coming from where we're coming from, uh, where quite a lot of research is focused on Eastern Europe, and yet uh, the Eastern European experience often comes in as secondary and um, undermined. I, I don't know if you agree with that. It was more of a reflection to what you've just, all of you mentioned. Actually, uh, that's a really good point because it gets to what I was going to ask next about when we incorporate other regions into our analysis, how that actually changes the analysis. So, you know, as with looking at women and uh, considering gender in our analysis, if we're, regardless if we're historians, sociologists, anthropologists, it's not something that you can just simply um, add and then mix and stir, right? It's, it's that it changes the analysis. And so my next question was going to be about, or is about, what happens when we include then second world women with post-socialism in our analysis, or I guess one would say socialism as well as post-socialism. So 
what happens to our analysis <laughs> of gender, of thinking about feminism, feminist theory and practice, uh, when we also include women from the former Eastern Bloc and stories of gender and, and that history? And how does that then challenge this kind of East, West, North, South frame? I maybe will start with more general reflections, and then I hope uh, the other authors will fill in here. I really think, and this is what I have learned through this book, uh, is that to move beyond binaries is central. And what we get at is that geopolitical inter interconnectedness become much more visible. And this focus on this interconnectedness gives a new knowledge uh, and should be part an integral part of the analysis so that we stop thinking in this way that one is moving towards the other, but rather how we affect each other. And we can say that this kind of post-colonial and transnational perspective, I would argue, have opened an important horizon, not only to provincialize Europe, as it is, has been called, but also to decenter it and uh, to look at different hierarchies within Europe itself. We will talk a little bit more about this later on, I think. Um, so, yeah, um, so it's this kind of to consider the entanglements and hierarchizations within Europe in new ways, which I think that if we include the second world or the post-socialist world with the others, which becomes much more apparent and makes the picture much more complicated. I think it's important, as I think you noted, Elzbieta and Agnieszka, that uh, we have also scholars and feminist activists from the region writing these histories, right? That it's not just Westerners and that we reframe our analysis so it's not this notion that these feminists uh, from, from the East are lagging behind or their late arrivals on the scene. And we made reference already, uh, Teresa, you did to transnational networks. And so I'm going to push a little further on this issue of how, how this changes our analysis. How does it change what we look at uh, as, as feminist scholars, what we focus on, what we study uh, by incorporating uh, the East into our analysis? and seeing the West maybe as a periphery? Well, one thing that has been evident from the beginning of, of these West-East um, exchanges between Western feminists, for instance, who would come to countries like Poland and the local women who were or were not feminists, is the uh, that th there's this assumption that Eastern Europeans were lagging behind and had to catch up because we missed out on the second wave of feminism. But in fact, as uh, Eastern European sociologists kept repeating, uh, women in Eastern Europe were fully employed in the 50s and 60s, or, or employed to a much greater extent than, than women in Western Europe or in the United States. In other words, state socialism, you know, it was not a democracy. It did not welcome independent uh, countercultural movements, but it also did not exclude women from the labor market. And so um, part of this catching up uh, was kind of ridiculous to Eastern European women because they didn't feel oppressed in the ways that the Westerners expected us to be, to, to, to be oppressed. Um, so I think part of the problem of this exchange was the expectation on, on the part of Western 
Western women, historians of uh, women's rights, for the same story to, to happen in Eastern Europe. And of course it didn't, uh, in part because we were not moving from a traditional uh, gender order to a liberation offered to uh, Eastern European women by um, by liberal democracy, but we were actually coming out of a system that welcomed a certain amount of emancipation, and we found ourselves uh, pushed into a to, into newly traditional roles. It was referred to as retraditionalization in the 90s. And some of the voices, for, for instance, from uh, former Yugoslavia, the women that wrote about this, uh, this situation, were very much informed in Western theories and um, theories produced in the West and also in the global South about, for instance, the the links between nationalism and gender. Uh, but I found in my conversations with women from the United States or Britain that they didn't really see the need to catch up. In other words, we were supposed to catch up and they were supposed to be offering us the the good news of feminist liberation and you know there were exceptions not everyone was uh, who, who not all the westerners who wrote about eastern europe were condescending in this way but this was a problem and uh, one of the key figures of this exchange of these exchanges and snito was actually very much a, a, um, aware of the problem and, and of her own lapses and she wrote about this in her very interesting um book that was published just a few years ago about her travels to eastern europe in other words, the the part of the problem was that we were we were expected to learn and catch up, and the Western women expected them themselves to know everything ahead of time. And I think there was a certain amount of bitterness in that foundational period. And I'm referring to the you know to the 90s when gender studies departments were being founded um, in, uh, in Eastern Europe. But uh, but if you if you're asking about the content of what what was there to learn. Well, the answer is that the chronology of 20th century women across Europe is really not the same. It's not, you know, from domesticity in the 50s to liberation in the 60s to to state feminism in the 70s. But there was a very different kind of emancipation in Eastern Europe, and it took some time to to even theorize it or, or think about it. And it's actually the younger generation of uh, scholars in Eastern Europe that are uh, dealing with that history um, in recent years. Uh, if you allow me to add something, I would just make a small remark on this, that both the Western stories and the Eastern stories are as such not so homogene. Um, I think that... Uh, the Western story has to a large degree been hegemonized also by the Anglo-Saxon stories and the stories by maybe German scholars or Italian scholars would be somewhat different and were different, but they were not heard so much due to this kind of new hegemony of the Anglo-Saxon scholarship, which did not yet exist before 89. And similarly, Eastern Europe, I think the perspectives, which I am somewhat familiar with the Polish perspectives, the perspectives in Poland and in the GDR, are, in the former GDR, were quite different. And if you look at the former Yugoslavia too, and this is not by coincidence, for instance, that scholars in former Yugoslavia, feminist scholars, quite early employed post-colonial scholarship to criticize Western feminists, whereas scholars in Poland were quite 
distant to that uh, field of research. So I really think, even if it's difficult, because we have to, in a, in a way, give names to this parts of the world, we should at the same time be aware that they were not homogeneous, that the US has not been Germany and the countries in Romania and Poland and Lithuania are quite different as such. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point so that we have to actually interrogate the categories, what we mean by East and West, but also acknowledge that within these categories, there are a host of complexities and there's hierarchies, right? There's racializations, uh, there's variations with regard to obviously region within a country, within a particular time period. And so that these things need to be taken into consideration and in a way deconstructed before we can even get to the point where then um, we can think of these feminisms kind of comparatively, right? And that actually relates in part to my next question about using a post-colonial frame, but also using this borderland framework. So those are two of the things you do in this book, among others. So maybe you can talk a bit about why this is a productive, a more productive way, perhaps, for analyzing these connections between different groups of feminists that were you know, marginalized or these stories that were kind of relegated to the margins. Yes, maybe I, I just start with this borderland concept uh, or framework, and then maybe we can, uh, and others might add, and then we can continue um, maybe to deepen on the post-colonial one. Um, I, I think that uh, what I, for me, has been crucial is to reconsider the uh, East-West demarcation in Europe uh, and really to put it in a wider global perspective. And we can say that something I was actually, as I am quite historically oriented in my work, but I was not so aware of it, that this hierarchizations which started between East and, and West were so closely linked uh, to the process of colonization from the 16th century as a colonization overseas colonization. So what we can see here is this kind of all the time, not binaries, but all the time linkages in different ways. And Manuela Boatka, uh, she has unfolded the concept of multiple Europes um, as a perspective. And for instance, here, both um, Eastern Europe and the Balkan and Spain and Portugal are seen, uh, are placed as semi-peripheries, um, contrasted to the center, which would be then uh, Germany, Britain and France. But the semi-peripheries, for instance, played quite different roles in the history since the 16th century. So we can say that this kind of borderland concept can work as a representation of Europe itself with this multiplicity and overlapping layers of historical, political and cultural formations. At the same time, it's a epistemological position which can mean that we think it's a thinking from the margins, which emphasizes, for instance, subaltern perspectives, which is the, the uh, as, as it is done in decolonial theory by 
Madina Tostanova and Walter Minolo, but also um, oriented towards what postcolonial theory rather places emphasis on, on, so to speak, thinking at the limit in between and hybridity and third spaces. Yes, this kind of different perspectives, uh, we will deepen, uh, I think, the, the discussion of, about this a little bit later on. But um, so if we use, for instance, the kind of post-colonial theory, which is part of several of the chapters in the book, then we can, for instance, see how Europe is borderland. If we look at it right now, today, is really how processes of rebordering occurs. And I just give one example of a chapter in the book, and this is Alexandra Soika, which explores what is called liminal Europeanness, uh, in which she looks at East-West mobility and different shades of whiteness. Uh, she investigates here domestic workers from Poland who migrate to Spain and shows how, so to speak, the self-perceptions of Polish workers in Spain um, are part of quite ambiguous webs of privilege and inferiorization. So the Polish workers are less visible as migrants, as non-European ones. At the same time, they are marked as is-Europeans, uh, as ascribed as inferior. So it's this kind of ambiguity, which is part of this new way of thinking, which I think the concept of borderlands can capture and direct our attention to. Um, and at, at a third stage here, the Polish migrants uh, and wor workers them themselves place themselves in racialized hierarchies of Slavicness by demarcate themselves from Russians or Romanians. So you see, it's really, it's quite complicated. Maybe somebody wants to add here. Well, if I may add, uh, because I think that today, um, this idea of borderland and uh, the um, analysis of uh, the ways in which uh, Central Eastern Europe is the border of Europe, both culturally and it's and it, it's very um you know direct pragmatic sense uh, th this is these questions have been uh, renewed by the current situation when we have the um when we have the um migration crisis at the polish belarusian border and uh, we observe the situation where the, the polish uh, government is basically um creating a um well, a sort of ghetto zone uh, where no journalist or no um, uh, nor, no, no civil society uh, activist can enter. Um, and there is no real outrage uh, um, at the level of the European Union or in you know other European um, countries, because in a sense, it's it's a confirmation of the fact that Poland is to be this kind of borderland protecting, um, protecting Europe and the European Union from migrants. And I think that this is a really um, something that we should ponder on. We should really um, discuss the consequences of this kind of framing 
um, because it's not only about cultural structures, but it's also about life and death. It's also about how we uh, imagine um, um, Europe as a, well, as a fortress, right? And who is about to um, protect it and using which means. Um, so I just wanted to stress that this is not just a discussion about how we imagine um, um, the relations uh, within Europe and outside of it, but also what what kind of politi- very concrete political consequences this kind of imageries have. Did someone want to address the issue of using this post-colonial or transnational frame for examining the region and also integrating it into the thinking about gender, women's lives, and also even activism, scholarship? Just shortly, I mean, it's explained in two sentences what postcolonized theorizing implies is is quite a challenge uh, as it is really a wide-ranging and contentious field and it also it has been so to speak also uh, very controversially debated to what extent is it applicable and we know for instance from the current debates uh, political debates that the polish government uses the term colonization referring to the European Union, that Poland is colonized by the European Union. So it has very different usages. At the same time, I would like to just emphasize that post-colonial theorizing and you can say post-colonial and decolonial have been incredibly important to, so to speak, question the narrative about the West as a self-producing entity creating its own, for instance, industrialization, modernity. Uh, what post-coloniality, post-colonial theory did is through the inc- including the linkages between colonialism and modernity On the one side, it studies colonialism, the history of colonialism and the long-term effects of cultural, epistemic, political, economical terms. At the same time, it it, it really insists on the entanglements between colonizing coloniality and European Western modernity as a starting point for rethinking or what is also called rephrasing modernity and i really think this it is this is very crucial to rethink europe or the processes of europeanization when uh, both in historical terms how did eastern europe became eastern europe and they are parallels between the overseas, um, even if they are different, so to speak, the Eastern Europe functions as a kind of second other, as it is also called, or as an incomplete self of Western Europe. And it's this kind of, the post-colonial so involves this kind of displacement of nation-centered imperial grand narratives. So I think the re-examination of the East-West divide from a global perspective, has opened up also new horizons for feminist theory rising. And and I see rather than focusing on only on Eastern Europe, I see the focusing on this different kind of 
entanglements and the motion towards theory on the world scale uh, as a more fruitful way for thinking further. Excellent. Uh, well, I'm going to move on to the sections now uh, so that we have enough time to address some of the chapters in these sections. So the book is divided into three parts. Uh, part one, bringing in the second other. Part two, conceiving scattered bodies. And part three, citizenship intersected. Uh, so since we have you here, Agnieszka, I thought maybe we could talk about your chapter since it examines some of the challenges and paradoxes that feminists in post-socialist Eastern Europe face. So maybe you could discuss that a bit and whatever else you'd like to address with respect to your chapter. Sure. I, I tried to turn the tables on the question that I think this book asks in general. In other words, what, can, what does feminism have to say about Eastern Europe seems to be, the, I think, the, the general framework. Maybe I'm being unfair. It, it's a very theory-oriented book. But my question is a, is a smaller question, uh, and it's basically what, does Eastern, what, what did Eastern European women in this formative period of, um, I'm, I'm mostly talking about the 90s and early, uh, and early 20th, 21st century, um, have uh, to, how did we respond to and how did we um, uh, struggle with uh, Western feminism as a, um, as a field? Um, I'm, not, I'm not talking about feminist history or uh, feminist strategy, but with feminist theory. And um, uh, so it, it's partly autobiographical and partly historical. And I insist on looking at uh, feminist theory as a phenomenon, um, as, a, as a cultural phenomenon that developed over time and that was much more um, attached to its place of origin than most of the theorizers um, realized. In other words, it was um, the, the, what is considered feminist theory is mostly Anglo-American feminist theory of produced in, in big universities in 80s and 90s. And of course, some of the, the, the best known names um, would include Judith Butler, I guess, uh, um, or Wendy Brown and I and I cite them here and I show the the that some of the debates that were happening in this period in Anglo-American feminism, uh, which were a, a, a response to a critique of second wave feminism and its a certain naivete that uh, that came with it, uh, that these debates uh, resonated differently in Eastern Europe, that we were aware of them, that we were fascinated by them, uh, but we also found them oddly irrelevant to our predicament, which was to establish feminism as a respected, respectable field of uh, inquiry at universities. So I look at some of these paradoxes that have to do with... with uh, coming into a field which is in the midst of, of trouble. Uh, and that trouble is, is referred to as anti-foundationalism. And that's, that's I guess, postmodern feminism or post-structuralist feminism of the, of the 90s. Another uh, type of trouble that was resonating in feminist theory at the time, of course, was uh, post-colonial um, theory and its impact on feminism. In other words, the, the, the tremendous impact of uh, women from the global south, as well as African-American women in the United States and women of color in, in Britain and Germany, speaking to white feminists. And, and making them accountable uh, for their color blindness or for their exclusions. And, and I address how that 
resonated or maybe failed to resonate in Eastern Europe, uh, how we felt that we were joining a conversation that was not really um, designed to have us join. Um, and finally, and that's perhaps the most um, significant, politically significant aspect of the debate and the one that resonates still in my more recent work with Elżbieta is the fact that the so-called cultural turn in feminism, uh, the fact that uh, in the in the mid-90s feminism became obsessed with, with language, ling discourse, uh, subject formation, uh, mm, the way that gender is produced in works of culture, that this had a side effect, historically contingent side effect of sidelining economic issues, of sidelining mm, attention that should have been paid perhaps in this period to inequalities and exploitations. And because in Eastern Europe, um, feminism was adapted as part of Westernization, as part of what we were then calling joining the jo joining Europe and what in practical terms, was basically EU accession. Feminist scholars in Eastern Europe, and maybe I'm overgeneralizing, accepted this framework as a kind of welcome alibi, not to, um, which allowed us not to deal with the roots of um, feminist theory and Marxism and in, in radical thought. In other words, the something that is now being critiqued by. Um, scholars such as Nancy Fraser as the neoliberalization of feminism uh, was part of um, American feminism's history, but it was the type of feminism that was accepted at Eastern European universities. So that, that is a paradox that has to do with chronology. And finally, perhaps my most uh, important theme, which I pick up from scholars from all over the, uh, the region, has to do with the fact that in uh, Western Europe and the United States, academic feminism grew out of a feminist movement. And in Eastern Europe, it was central in Eastern Europe. It, it happened the other way around. In other words, we, we were establishing gender studies departments before we had a movement. The, the movement now exists, and it's actually in a very interesting and and slightly, um, I would say, hostile relationship to academic feminism. There is a kind of anti-theory term uh, turn or anti-academic uh, sentiment in, in the grassroots. But that didn't exist when I was writing this article. Um, what we had were people who were sort of wearing two pairs of shoes at the same time, academic shoes that brought us into conversation with uh, transnational feminist uh, circles. And... Uh, activist or even political shoes, which we, we were wearing at home, trying to bring some kind of gender equality into mainstream politics, media, and so on. And this created a kind of tension that I explore between theory and practice, which, which I believe in general is an issue for feminism. In other words, the anti-foundational turn of postmodern feminism uh, was was problematic from a movement perspective. Once you start challenging the category of women, it's very hard to speak with a straight face about a women's movement. And uh, so I looked at that particular period when all of these discussions were uh, were were happening um, and the paradoxes that came with them. Yeah, I mean, I find that fascinating and also kind of tragic in a way because I'm thinking about that obviously feminists who are involved in NGOs and also establishing these departments had to make feminist studies, gender studies palatable, right, in order to get the funding. And the way to do that, right, was to embrace uh, a Euro approach, the neoliberal approach, 
to the economy, to establishing um, a, a post-socialist system. And then, as you note, just kind of the betrayal then some of the younger feminist activists uh, feel about that, right? That they that there wasn't space for alternative ideologies, right? That that this idea that there is no other alternative also filtered into approaches then to the study of gender and feminism. Would, would that be kind of an accurate portrayal of what's happening on the ground? I- Depends on whose perspective you take. You could say that the younger generation felt betrayed by the older and joined in the in the argument that was, um, I think, most uh, famously stated by by Kristen Godsey, an American feminist, that uh, you know feminists uh, feminists were in in Eastern Europe were were sort of the handmaidens of neoliberalism, and. So, so the younger generation took up that uh, that argument, but I I belong to the older generation, and I actually think that we were the ones who were betrayed by, and I'm I'm putting this in quotation marks because of course we all you know um, we're all sisters in some ways, uh, but that the betrayal or rather the inaccurate representation consisted in building the story in which uh, feminists in Eastern Europe consciously and and somehow uh, deliberately ushered in neoliberal policies that's not true that's the the critique of neoliberalism came later and along with it this idea that that i think circulates of uh, ngoization as betrayal it wasn't a betrayal it was the only strategy available so i prefer the 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 idea of um you know the tragic choices to the idea of of conscious betrayal because that that it begins to sound like you know feminists in eastern europe sold out in order to get funding from western um uh from from western donors and that's that's not how it worked i think you have to keep in mind the the historic moment of uh you know ushering democracy and along with it women's rights and the fact that this was democracy combined with the neoliberal project well that wasn't entirely visible at the time. I don't think we thought in those terms. The word neoliberalism was not around in in the mid-90s. Those are really important points. And thank you for sketching out the context of the 1990s in greater detail, because I think it's easy to read this backwards and see these generational differences or rifts. But in fact, as you note, uh, feminists in the 1990s uh, were in large part using the tools and strategies they had available to them which was NGOs, was economic reformism and later neoliberal uh, policies to make their voices heard and to secure support for their policies and initiatives. I guess you could also say that the tragedy was, or the betrayal was, was on the part of the Western donors, that feminism came to us packaged as this uh, modernization project in which there was room for talk about, uh, you know, balancing gender roles and counteracting uh, sexual harassment. But there was no room for serious consideration of the exploitation of women's uh, unpaid labor, domestic labor. Certain topics there were there was room for and others were excluded and it wasn't our fault and here i speak sort of jealously of us as the you know the the the, the few women that were trying to to introduce gender equality in the region in the early 90s the i think the extent of the marginality of uh, feminism in this period needs to be remembered and that's part of what i try to do in this uh, in this chapter thank you so much i i think those are important considerations to keep in mind and i'm thinking especially 
you know, the ideological significance of maybe making such arguments in the 1990s, right, when regimes, organizations, institutions are trying to differentiate themselves from the previous socialist period. So anything that kind of smacked of that then would be discredited in a way. And I don't know how much that bears upon what you're saying, but that's kind of what I was thinking as well. Um, And so that there's no space, even though you have people who would want to make that argument, who would want to advocate uh, for the importance of being paid for work that's done in the home or care work, right? For ailing family members, that there's just not that space because ideologically there had been so much discrediting of the socialist period. I was wondering maybe, Teresa, since your uh, chapter is in this section, maybe you could discuss that. In the section, I there's this uh, chapter which I authored um, about post-colonial, decolonial theorizing, which I already mentioned before, and which has been a theoretical approach. It has been further developed and discussed how useful is it to study Eastern Europe. And I this chapter offers a kind of genealogy of different strands of postcolonial theorizing, which at first are referring to often uh, um, Edward Said, Homi Baba, Giatris Spivak, but from a feminist perspective, we would, of course, include Beatrice Bivak, but also Audre Lorde uh, or Gloria Anzaldúa. Uh, so there are different kinds of thinking about um, post-colonial uh, and how this can be um, useful and uh, looking at Eastern Europe and what and this has been highly contested as some scholars criticized a kind of a using postcolonial theory as a kind of further applying a western concept to Eastern Europe which others would disagree with um, I myself sympathize quite a lot with this uh, saying that there may be uh, post-colonial in different ways and maybe not post-colonial in the same way. So we have to look um, more carefully on, so to speak, uh, how this can be used and useful in different regions of the world one of the questions which has always been debated in this literature is to what, um, how Russia fits into this colonial, colonizes in imperial countries, uh, as it has not been an overseas colonizer like the so-called um, classical colonizing empires in the beginning, Portugal and Spain, and later Britain and France. Today, we could say there's a really a broad range of research considering different layers of imperial powers and comparative how this is used in different countries, like in the Baltic states, uh, where different scholars have sort of been uh, emphasized that the Baltic region has been colonized first by Germans, then by Russia, 
or parts of southeastern Europe or Poland, which has been sort of, as you know, divided between the Habsburgian and the Prussian and Russian. Um, one concept which is has been always part of the debates too is what how can race, how does race fit into this? Are the white, so-called white, Polish, Catholic, similar to the African blacks? Is, is it legitimate to think in these terms? Um, if we look, it's not in the same way as um, Stuart Hall has called, called it's not colonized in the same way, but still um, the kind of racialization of Slavicness has been um, quite common, uh, not only in during the Nazi time, but already before, uh, linked to knowledge about eugenics. Um, so this kind, and it was not seldom that Eastern Europe has been compared to, for instance, Latin America as not being able to, to govern themselves. Therefore, it has to be occupied so that there are quite a lot of, so to speak, similarities uh, between those parts of the world which are then considered as really colonized and, and the European parts of Europe. So uh, in the chapter, I discuss this kind of different perspectives and I also um, look at this demarcations between different schools like the so-called decolonial perspective which uh, has grown mainly in Latin America and the post-colonial which is linked to scholars who come usually more from the Anglo-Saxon um, yeah uh, part of the world, despite, of course, the fact that Edward Said came from Palestine and Gertrude Spivak from India. I am in this part somewhat critical with this very strong and quite polemic demarcations uh, between both approaches. Uh, I really think that rather than being so different, um, they can um, enrich each other and what post-colonial theorizing and decolonial theory in different ways really brings to the front is uh, what Agnieszka just recently mentioned something which has f fallen out uh, after the cultural turn is how we can link economic inequality with epistemic inequality and how are the how do we need a better understanding of both in order to understand how uh, the current changes in the world work so um, so I really think that this kind of um, perspectives linking them, the post-colonial and the decolonial can be really useful in analyzing the rebordering uh, within Europe. And for me, um, it's a kind of a, also the way 
in which I try to look at this quite polemic discussions. Uh, for me, it's like trying to open a space of thinking uh, for feminist theorizing and a modality of feminist theorizing that, so to speak, unfolds contested knowledge and is capable of living up to the politics of contestation and entanglement rather than these strong demarcations and a theoretical work which I would call crazy quilting and dirty blending and creolizing rather than um, putting up new doxas. Maybe somebody wants to add here. I think the, the important uh, point that you, Teresa, brought up earlier was about uh, the assumption that um, the the second other, the Eastern European experience, um, sometimes is seen as uh, very homogeneous and and monolithic. And um, what one of the chapters um, highlights is the heterogeneity of that experience. And and Yule Grasgower, she uses. Uh, what she calls a decolonial perspective, um, precisely to do that, to see the hierarchies within Russian experience in this sense, um, and the subjugation of um, women's experiences that were not considered to be kind of the white Russian European. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, going back to one of the earlier questions, what um, what does bringing the second other into the discussions, what does it have for consequences and what does the post-colonial or decolonial perspective um, contribute to uh, this research and that's in particular, and I think that's that's the important message that it shows the nuance and the, the diversity within categories that are sometimes um, taken for granted and becoming invisible because they are generalized too much. Yeah, I think these are really important points, especially that we cannot view the second world as homogenous, that we need to consider, you know, the diversity of this space, the nuances of everyday life, and also how spaces uh, are racialized, how hierarchies are created. So yeah, thank you for that. Okay, I'd like to move on to part two now, which is entitled Conceiving Scattered Bodies. And Elish Bieta, you authored uh, a chapter in this section, which focuses on reproductive technologies and citizenship in Poland. So could you give our listeners a snapshot of this chapter? Yes, I've been looking at the debates around in vitro fertilization, which is um, um, something that has been really heated in Poland, uh, a heated issue around 2015 and a little bit before. And... Um, what has been um, very interesting in this case is that uh, in the Polish context, it was not only about you know fear of new reproductive technologies or uh, biotechnological innovations regarding reproduction, but there was also a, a specific trope that I haven't encountered in other countries in which you you see that the children born after uh, medical intervention uh, were uh, marked as so-called IVF children, and they were um, described by um, 
socially conservative groups and Catholic uh, um, opponents of in vitro as those who are who for who who pose a threat to the nation. So you could see a distinctive anti-Semitic matrix of discrimination there, where you where on this on the one hand uh, there were discussions around you know the, the possible threat to the nation that these children posed uh, because of the fact that they were uh, carrying, allegedly uh, carrying some kind of diseases and so on, which is not really um, confirmed by science, so to speak. But also, uh, at the same time, there was this notion of um, otherness uh, in the sense that they are carrying the sins of their uh, of their parents. Therefore, they become a moral liability, in a sense, um, in, within... Uh, national community of Poles. Um, and that uh, was combined, this trend towards um, creating and promulgating this discri- highly discriminatory language uh, concerning uh, children born thanks to, the med- uh, thanks to medical interventions. Uh, it was also accompanied by uh, uh, derogatory language uh, addressing uh, people who were affected by infertility. Uh, who were accused of, uh, you know, doing abortions or uh, using contraceptives and so on and so forth. So they were distinctly uh, marked as immoral. Um, And I think that these types of uh, uh, narratives uh, around um, assisted reproduction um, are very much uh, characteristic to the ways in which uh, reproduction has been an important part of this process of, you know, contestation, reconstitution, legitimation um, of political authority uh, in the region already in the nineties. But now we have entered at this point. At this point in the nineties, uh, actually, it is until today in the Polish context. It was mostly about abortion, but um, uh, but. Uh, assisted reproduction is also highly controversial. Uh, and that uh, analysis shows that th- this issue is connected to family reproductions, these fears around declining fertility are important not only in post-transitional contexts or post-socialist contexts, but also in, um, in other contexts, in mature democracies, whatever we want to call them, um, and when we observe discussions around this issue in Italy, for example, or in France or in other countries, you can see how this notion of biological citizenship is being used and abused by, by different groups. Um, and that shows that uh, really uh, what has started as this kind of this process of recontextualization of the fetus, uh, which started as sort of showing the fetus um, in anti-choice propaganda as uh, as an entity that really doesn't belong to, to the women's body, but something that is, well, sort of a floating object uh, that has rights on their own, um, it, it develops into the situation where um, uh, uh, the so-called conceived children, uh, meaning the fertilized eggs on the Petri dish, become also the object of uh, state um, care and become um, elevated to the position of um, of citizenship. So this kind of trends, we can probably see them much more um, clearly today than it was a couple of years ago because of the sort of 
intensification of the culture wars uh, globally, um, especially if we think about, for example, stud, uh, struggles around uh, Roe versus Wade today in the U- in, in the United States. But it shows how how citizenship has came or actually remained, in many ways, um, contested issue. And that issue of reproduction and uh, fertility and sexuality are uh, key key spaces in which these negotiations of uh, today's negotiations of around a citizenship uh, uh, play out. Yeah, those are excellent and really important points. And maybe to kind of expand on that, could you talk briefly about uh, what's happening today in Poland? So, of course, we have women who are dying as a result of the denial of this part of their citizenship, right? Essentially, the right to life. Uh, so, you know, what does this mean? Yes, you're referring to, I understand that you're referring to the case, um, it was a case of a woman who has been pregnant and she went to the hospital and she wasn't given the right care. Uh, the doctors uh, refused to conduct uh, abortion on the premises that um, it would be illegal under the current legislation. And in October 2020, there was a, a new ruling of the Constitutional Tribunal regarding um, uh, abortion law in Poland, which made um, abortion in the case of uh, fetal abnormalities uh, no longer uh, accepted by the law. Um, and I think that, well, w- w- when you ask about the future, um, what we can see in, especially in the Polish context, is the fact that on the one hand, we have a very uh, restrictive legislation and there are uh, there are there, there are efforts to restrict access to abortion or reproductive technologies as well through, for example, uh, promoting conscious clauses or through shutting down um, state uh, finance program of financial support for people uh, who experience infertility. And that, on the one hand, um, is connected to this process of retraditionalization or the onslaught of anti-gender ultra-conservative movements. But at the same time, the ultimate uh, result of that is the privatization of the sphere. Because that means that um, in Poland, uh, access to reproductive technologies is open for people who can afford it, basically. And it's very similar with uh, access to abortion. It is available to those women who have means to go abroad or who have at least cultural capital and a little bit of money to order pills online. So this is this is a really important element of these developments, that it really pushes women towards uh, poverty, basically, because we know how a lack of access to high-quality reproductive care uh, what it results in. But at the same time, there is this uh, horrible cruelty of the new laws and regulations, which basically um, include an assumption that the death of the women as a result of the law is justified. Is um, I mean, it was amazing to, to see the um, reactions of uh, the representatives of the ruling party who said, well, basically this kind of things happen and we shouldn't be, you know, uh, appalled by that because this is a natural cause, a natural um, uh, fact of life, you know, that people die and why should we care about it? 
So there is there is a, a level of incredible misogyny, I would say, uh, included in um, this ultra-conservative position. Uh, but at the same time, um, this regime offers a way out to women who can afford it. So it is a reproduction of this kind of you know neoliberal order in which your worth really depends on how much money you can get. And that's always been the case for uh, women and accessing abortion or birth control, at least in, in states in which it's mm-hmm. uh, illegal, right? And you know what, what you say, it's, it's as if we've returned to the, the Middle Ages. It's just like, well, maternal mortality is just unfortunately something that happens and there are no interventions that can prevent it when, of course, there are. And yeah, I've, I've just been thinking a lot about this issue of citizenship. And it's to the point now in Poland where the child's right to life, citizenship is more important than the mother's. Yes, but it also shows that uh, feminist critiques of citizenship as an empty, you know, concept, if it, if it is not rooted in economic and social equality, mm-hmm. are you know spot on because this is exactly what it is about. If you have um, certain political rights but you are not able to act upon them, or if you don't have those rights um, in a principle, but you can still find a way around them if you have enough money. That's exactly what it is about. Right. Uh, And being able to mobilize economic capital. So essentially, if you don't have that economic capital, you're pretty much uh, helpless. Okay, I'd like to move on to section three now. And it's actually a good continuation of our discussion of citizenship because the section is entitled Citizenship Intersected. And Jana, you have a chapter in this section that examines citizenship and the masculinist security state, uh, as well as educational reform in Russia. So maybe you can discuss your chapter? Sure, I can speak on mine. I think Theresa mentioned uh, very briefly uh, Alexandra's chapter in some earlier discussion. Maybe she would like to go back to that or Elspeth. Um, I was really drawn to this topic partly uh, because of some of the things that Elspeth just uh, mentioned in relation to Poland are very true in Russia. Uh, the retraditionalization, the overt misogyny of it, um, of, of the policies that um, disregard uh, women's reproductive rights, women health, women's health, and um, the right to sometimes right to live. Um, um, they are very open in. Um, the current uh, Russian political climate. I began my chapter by referring to the um, social movement that uh, took place at the time, what was kind of at the height of its activities, if I may say so, uh, at the time when I was writing the chapter, um, uh, which was about um, uh, bringing light to women's experiences of uh, domestic violence, uh, which were met by... um, decriminalization of um, domestic violence, basically, uh, by uh, Russian uh, State Duma. So in that, um, in that climate, I uh, was looking at, at a completely different phenomenon. I was looking at uh, young children uh, leaving school, uh, their enrollment in extracurricular activities and its role um, and the role of those extracurricular activities for academic performance, kind of completely outside of the the topics that were discussed so far. Uh, but what's 
I was struck by was this idea that retraditionalized um, neo-masculinist uh, state at that time we were still cautiously using semi-authoritarian um, uh, title in relation to uh, the Russian political regime. Now I think we can uh, quite freely talk about neo-masculinist authoritarian regime. Um, so that my idea was that the logic that that manifests so uh, strongly when it comes to the rights of women, um, this logic of uh, domination and subjugation actually um, spills over um, quite naturally into other areas where the relationships between the individual and the state or different groups of individuals are not necessarily based on their gender. That some institutions that uh, maybe even are gender neutral in some sense um, when it comes to um, institutionalizing the relationship between the individual and the state uh, exhibit the same logic uh, of uh, patriarchal subjugation and so i looked at the parliamentary debates about an educational reform it was an introduction of the unified state exam that all um, Russian citizens have to take at the end of uh, their upper secondary uh, schooling. And I looked at the both proponents and uh, opponents of that reform um, and their use of um, this kind of uh, benevolent, protective patriarchal uh, logic in relation to citizens, which both attributed uh, responsibility to those uh, citizens for in, in relation to the state for how they um, uh, how they complete their education, how they enter labor market, how they uh, basically behave as citizens, um, and at the same time denied them rights, de- denied them um, capacity to uh, fully use those rights without being uh, limited and strongly monitored by uh, state institutions and. The theoretical inspiration came from uh, Iris Marion's young article um, on the uh, this logic of uh, security state that um, uh, was uh, used in the U.S. after the uh, terrorist attack of 9/11 to introduce some of the strongly non-democratic institutions and, and practices in the U.S. and so. Um, looking at this, at the field of educational reform, um, I could see the same logic. It was not overtly, overtly misogynistic as other policies were, but I thought that they were um, manifestation of the uh, of the same um, type of relationship that the state uh, establishes with the individual. Great, thank you so much. So then my final question is, in what way are feminists in Eastern Europe leading the way in confronting and resisting efforts to undermine women's rights and the rights of sexual minorities? So kind of combining theory and practice in a way. So what is the relationship between feminism and activism in Europe? Because this is one of the things uh, Agnieszka discussed in her chapter. Well, this is something that goes beyond uh, uh, the scope of the book, uh, but certainly we can see a revival of the women's movements, especially in countries such as Poland, where women are at the forefront of opposition uh, against the right-wing populist um, state. 
and um, uh, ultra-conservative civil society actors as well. Um, And I think that what is happening is that women in um, these countries offer, on the one hand, they have, I mean, they, in a way, we, uh, because I'm I'm an activist as well as I am... um, um, as I am a researcher. So we would try to still combine this uh, engagement uh, at the grassroots with um, an attempt to theorize what is happening. And in that sense, I think that um, the analysis of right-wing uh, populism or um, extreme right, right-wing uh, movements which are especially strong in the region might be uh, very useful for um you know in other contexts because i think that uh, in many respects the uh, central eastern europe has become become this kind of space for those ultra conservative uh, transnational movements to try out certain um certain strategies certain discourses certain narratives and in that sense um uh, we are at the forefront of those struggles uh, again. Um, and one element that I see very strongly is an attempt to reclaim uh, the category of the people by the women's movement, to make the movement um, uh, n- less elitist, less closed, less uh, engaged in its own you know, intellectual or activist bubble, but be more embedded in uh, struggles for social justice, uh, struggles for environmental justice, struggles against neoliberalism. And in that sense, again, there is much more connection between, let's say, Polish women's strike and uh, Argentinian um, uh, women's movement. Then there is a connection uh, between um, sort of, you know, the second world and the first world, if we if we are to use this um, this differentiation. Um, and I think that this might be a good starting point for a, a new conversation. Um, that would be transnational, a conversation around the ways in which feminism can become um, a power to uh, oppose uh, right-wing populism, but also fascism, because this is something that um, we need to to take into account. So that would be my point. Anyone else want to comment? I mean, I fully agree. And I think what you're arguing here, too, is the importance of coalition building, that we shouldn't just see this as about an issue with respect to women, but that we can build coalition with other groups that are also finding themselves um, in some way marginalized or discriminated against, or the target of you know hateful discourses, uh, repressive legislation, right? And so that by forming these coalitions, you have power in numbers to contest populism, anti-gender efforts, anti-LGBTQ groups and initiatives, and that this can be done transnationally. And of course, with the role of social media uh, in this process, it's, it's different than what it looked like in the 90s and certainly before. Yes, definitely. But I think that it's, in a way, it's one way to uh, go beyond uh, endless discussions around uh, whether or not women can be this organizing category for the feminist movement. Because these movements try to use much broader category, which is the people, which is basically a form of uh, left populism, right? Uh, in order to uh, to uh, re 
imagine or reorient uh, the right-wing populist uh, division between, you know, uh, the people who are uh, always uh, positioned within this discourse as, you know, socially conservative, locally rooted, and so on, and um, uh, the elites which are identified as feminists, uh, genderists, global uh, global uh, elites, and so on, uh, economic elites as well. So th- this is a very, I would say, clear attempt to uh, to, to really reclaim this notion of uh, we the people for the women's movement or feminist movement as well. So in a way, reinscribing populism so that it actually reflects the concerns of the people rather than being something that's used opportunistically by various elites. Yes. And instrumentalized. Any other comments or thoughts as we close here? Just maybe if Teresa would like to be the one who speaks last, so I put in uh, just a short uh, comment as well, uh, because I reacted, I, I, I think about what the Shveta just said about a feminist movement and feminist scholarship as the opposition to um, fascism and right-wing populism, but I think it's not only an opposition, but it's also a... Uh, constructively um, a positive movement in as much as there is a potential to to talk about the uh, the pro-democratic character of it like it's not only anti but it's also pro and the the combination of uh, experience and scholarship is what can um, build this new kind of legitimacy for democracy uh, both on acknowledging particularity uh, of different experiences um, and the generality of it as a kind of the foundation of legitimation for democracy i think that's that it's not only anti something that there is a a strong pro-democratic impetus for both the scholarship and the activism although i'm (laughs) I'm neither talking about this but that's um uh, that's how I see it, maybe a bit from the outside of, of both. Yeah, that it needs to be productive. Yeah. To be honest, Yuzhana, you said really important. Uh, you put it on the spot. I, I really think this is uh, important lessons uh, from the past decades. Uh, also lessons from what happened in the countries after 89 in so-called Eastern Europe, that we need this kind of linkages between activism and knowledge and and also how this kind of different experiences and knowledges on a global scale can be linked and I think we need a kind of um, further push for transnational feminism in maybe a new way with a greater consciousness about the similarity of experiences, especially in the former second world and in what we could then call the former third world. I would like to stop here. That's perfect, um, because as you note, there is this history of collaboration between the second and third world, and it made sense for women from these regions to be collaborating. And it continues, uh, as you note, to make sense 
for them to do so because, of course, they have similar concerns. And forging these coalitions and nourishing them and using them as a basis for change uh, is important. Well, I'd like to thank Teresa, Jana, Elzbieta, and Agnieszka for joining us for this fascinating conversation. And I highly recommend their book, and I wish them all the best in their future endeavors. Thank you so much. That was great. Thank you so much. Indeed. Thank you.